And I'm going to ask you to open your your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And this is going to be um, our last study in James. Uh, As you may or may not know, next week is the day we celebrate our Lord's triumphant entry. And it kicks off for us our Holy Week. For over the next two weeks, we will not be in the book of James. So um, we will be studying what what the Lord has done for us. James chapter 2, today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. I'll read it through. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with gold ring and dressed in fine clothes... And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say to you and you say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Father, we ask that you would give your word with clarity, Lord. Speak unto our hearts. Convict us of sin. Draw us to yourself, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the past few years, if you look at our nation, over the past few years, you've heard a lot about race, ethnicity, um, the rights of various groups, how they feel they may have been marginalized over, over history. And our once great nation, which motto is e pluribus unum, which literally means out of many, one, seems to be going from e pluribus unum to out of many, many. We seem to be uh, increasingly in factions. But when we look at the gospel... When we look at the gospel of God, when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't see that. The gospel isn't anything that speaks to us about sectarianism. It's not anything that speaks to us about partiality and favoritism. Matter of fact, one of the attributes of God is that God does not show partiality. God does not show favoritism. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the message of the truth, God is not partial in judgment in calling anyone unto Christ. And as we begin James chapter 2, James calls out this sin of favoritism, or as it's known in the Old Testament, is partiality and what was going on with these early believers. What is this favoritism? What is this partiality? Well, coming out of Pharisaic Judaism, giving honor and distinction to certain groups of people was something that was culturally accepted in the day. For instance, the Pharisees, the Levites, the scribes, the Sadducees, These folks were held in high regard in Jewish society. Those with wealth, those with position, 
were also respected because it was thought in those days that if you were wealthy, that that was a blessing from God. So you had God's favor upon you. And it was also thought if you were well, if you didn't suffer any kind of affirmity, if you didn't have any kind of illness, that also God's favor was upon you. Remember when uh, Jesus healed uh, the blind man and they said to him, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his, his parents, right? It was thought to be the result of some kind of sin. And we see this in Acts 23, 4, you know, when the, Sanhed- when the Sanhedrin is interrogating Paul, right? And Paul is being interrogated, and the high priest orders Paul to be hit, right? You don't have to turn there, but in Acts 23, 4, it reads, But the bystander said, Do not revile God's high priest. And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Paul had quoted from Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, where he says, you shall not curse nor curse a ruler of your people, right? It was the high priest who gave the order. Paul didn't know it was the high priest. He answered back the high priest, right, which shows kind of that, that structure, but if you look at our Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't show favoritism in any, at, at, at all. Christ was accused of what? Of sitting and eating and drinking with sinners. Christ revered, you know, Christ ministered to the woman caught in the act of adultery. Christ cast out demons from Mary Magdalene. He showed grace and kindness to the religious and the educated. If you look at how he approached Nicodemus. And Jesus showed grace to the discarded, to the lower classes of society. I think of the the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus in Mark 7, 26. And he was kind to her, even though she was a Gentile. He associated with lepers. He associated with Samaritans. He associated between those who were sick and those who were healthy. He did not distinguish between Gentile or Jew because he knew all needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the early church, this cultural favoritism began to carry out. Now, it's important that you realize that James, it's estimated, is written between 40 and 45 AD. So these are early believers. These are early Jewish believers who are expelled from Jerusalem by Rome and have moved out into other parts of the world. These are the first of the first of the believers, if you want to say it that way. Right? So they're, they're coming in. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that's new to them. Right? Most of them were meeting in synagogues until they were excommunicated from synagogues. And they were put out in the synagogues. And as we just saw in James chapter 1, James had to uh, define for us what is pure and undefiled religion. And he said there in verse 27, by keeping oneself unstained by the world. While the epistles of Paul and Peter and John speak very much to very 
doctrinal issues of salvation, doctrinal issues of sanctification. As I've said earlier, this epistle of Peter is about practical Christianity, the blocking and tacking type, uh, tackling type of Christianity, right? Living and abiding faith. How do you live faith? And as we looked at before, James put forth the series of tests, and we've gone through some of those tests early on in chapter 1. And here he's going to put another test about how we deal with judgment within the church. So if you were going to look at chapter 2, if you were going to outline chapter 2, it's really broken into two major categories. The first one is dealing with favoritism and partiality. And if you were to break that down, you see the first part is the command against favoritism in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 1. The second is the conduct of favoritism in verses 2 through 4. And the third one is the consequences of favoritism in verses 5 through 13. That constitutes the first portion of the outline. The second outline, and one where we're going to spend the serious amount of time is, is in the second half of chapter 2, and that's dealing with faith and works, the whole issue between faith and works. And if you would break that down, it would be the inquiry into faith and works found in chapter 2, verse 14, the illustration that James gives of faith and works in verses 15 to 17, and the indoctrination of faith to works in verses 18 to 26. Now today... We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and we're going to explore the command against favoritism and the conduct of favoritism. And as I said, once we get past through the, uh, the Holy Week, we will then jump back into James. But look with me at James 2.1. James writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, I've said this many times before, and I hope you know this by now, that the scriptures were not written with chapter and verse. That came later on during the Middle Ages, right? It kind of broke it down into chapter and verse. So as we continue, this is a continual dialogue that James is having here, right? Last week, we left off with verses 25... um, through 27, but if one looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. And if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, continuity here, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So what is this favoritism? What is this partiality? A good definition of that is really to really give judgment looking at someone's exterior. You make a judgment on the outside. 
Maybe you make that judgment based on the way the person dresses. Maybe you look at you make that judgment based on the title of that respective person. Maybe you just like that person. So consequently, you're going to look at the exterior of the human being and you are going to be partial to that individual. And by the way, there's a lot of that that still goes on, not only outside the church, but in the church. Now there's a history here, because ever since the days of Moses, favoritism and partiality and special treatment to those of another class It was forbidden. It was forbidden in the Old Testament. The law rejected partiality. The law rejected partiality. Deuteronomy 1.17 reads as follows. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. Now, what's going on here? This is Moses assigning judges within Israel to hear some of the cases of the people who had left Egypt. And notice the direction of Moses. You do not show partiality. You don't do it. You hear the cases of the small and the great, the small and the great being those of less significance in society and those held in high esteem of society. His directive is very clear. You shall not fear man, for judgment is of God. And the case that is too hard, if you're troubled by it, if you can't make a decision, then you bring that case to me, Moses directs those in Israel. The law of Moses also made similar provisions. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. For you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So we can see going back well, well, well into the Old Testament times, There was no partiality, nor was it something that was acceptable. But as I mentioned previously, during the first century, during the rise of Pharisaic Judaism, there was partiality that was shown. And specifically, there was favoritism of the wealthy, of the social classes that were there, of the religious Elite. And there was, by the way, harsh, harsh discrimination against the poor, against the sick, against the underclasses of society. There was discrimination that was approved and there was racism that was approved, particularly between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and and Samaritans. Matter of fact, this past week on Bible study Tuesday night, we were going through the parable of the good Samaritan. I brought out the issues of of how Samaritans were viewed, and uh, even to this day, how those people are still viewed by Jews in Israel. This was culturally accepted. It was culturally accepted. 
Listen, even the Apostle Peter, even the Apostle Peter had difficulty at first accepting that Gentiles were going to be born again. If you look at Acts 10, verses 34 through 35, after the Holy Spirit falls in the house of Cornelius, after the Holy Spirit falls, and the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, Peter says this, and opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And stop and think about that for a moment. How Wonderful is that. That if God had shown uh, partiality, if God had shown favoritism to a particular people, to a particular race, to a particular ethnicity, where would it leave most of us? We would be damned. We would be damned. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is God is no respecter of persons and is not partial regarding the gospel of grace and his mercy his judgments all of it he deals with without partiality and if you look at it the church comprises people from all nations and there's a great example of this found in the book of revelation look at revelation chapter 7 Verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. It reads as follows, And after these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. They cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, all tribes, all people, all tongues, gathered around the throne of God, worshiping the Lord God. Here in James 2, James identifies with this early problem that was occurring in the church as they were maintaining some of the same cultural practices of favoritism and partiality, and he commands against it. If you look at James 2.1, he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James uses what's called a present imperative tense in the Greek. Simply those words, do not hold, is not a suggestion from James. Rather, it is a command. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord with an attitude of personal favoritism. And this this word favoritism carries the idea 
of lifting up one's face by judging the appearance of another. So what it is, is you're lifting it up, you're looking on the exterior, you're judging from the exterior of an individual. But God calls on every believer to judge righteously. Proverbs 18.5 says this, To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. Proverbs 24.23 says, These are also the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. This use in verse 1 of this imperative that James uses, by the way, for whatever it's worth, I think in the book of James there are over 18 imperatives, meaning there are 18 commands that James uses when he addresses this practical Christianity, this living faith, this abiding faith, and it's something to take note of. In other words, James isn't giving suggestions, I'm going to tell you how to to live right, James is saying, here's what God is saying, here's what the word of God is saying, do not, don't do these things. And he begins here in verse 1 immediately as he looks at the command against favoritism that we should never judge on the exterior. When I was a little kid, um, growing up in Brooklyn, um, you know, the a lot of my friends used to go into um, um, the, the corner grocery store. They used to go into, the, you might remember this, the luncheonettes, right? And go into the luncheonettes, and they would sell candy and baseball cards, and, and they would do all these things. And a lot of my friends used to go in there, and they used to steal stuff, right? Now, don't judge me, right? I'm telling you, they used to steal stuff, right? So they used to go in there, and... You know, it used to be very common. They would walk by something, you know, put it in their pocket. Uh, I was usually darker than all of my friends, right? And they would go out and they would steal stuff. But when I went into the store, I would be followed. They would look at me. Why? Because there was an assumption that, well, I, I may have been a little bit darker. Let me watch this kid. This kid's going to rob. But I never stole anything, Right. I had the fear of God plus the fear of my father in me, which was uh, enough, enough to keep me from doing those things. But that is an example of when we look on the exterior and we're going to make a respective judgment on the exterior. Now, now, James, in order to make this point, is going to present to us in verses 2 and 3 a hypothetical example. He's going to give us a real hypothetical example of what this looks like as he shows us the conduct of favoritism. Look at verses 3 and 4. Uh, 2, 3, and, 2 and 3, I'm sorry. For if a man comes into your assembly with gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Now, what's kind of ironic is during the first century, right, most of what we would consider the born-again believer church, they were mostly comprised of the poor. And if they weren't the poor, they were slaves, right? 
There's early first century writing from the Romans. And in one of the, tree, uh, one of the writings of the Romans, one of the reasons he does not like Christians, and he says it right there, is the fact that they are poor, they are uneducated, or they're comprised mostly of slaves, right? They were the ones, and it's kind of funny, right? Doesn't the Lord say he chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise? It wasn't the many educated that were coming to faith in Christ or many that were establishing themselves, but the incredible thing about the doctrine or the gospel of Jesus Christ that was being accomplished is God was using the discarded. Yeah, we have the Apostle Paul. Yeah, we have Luke. Yeah, we have some real geniuses. But the gospel, for the most part, is being carried out by everyday people. And I submit to you, it's very much the same today. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth by people who are ordinary people. Yeah, we have great people in the church of God. We have educated people. I just came back from Shepherd's Conference, right? And every time I come back from Shepherd's Conference, somebody invariably asks me, well, what did you learn at Shepherd's Conference? And for the last 10, 15 years, I say the same thing. I really learn how stupid and what an idiot I really am when I hear these great people preach and teach. Phenomenal minds. Amazing minds. They have forgotten more about the gospel, more about the word of God than I may even know. But yet God has a ministry for each and every one of us. And church, I want to remind you of something. Don't count yourself out. You could be effective for the gospel. It doesn't require degrees. It doesn't require anything. If you are in Christ, if you are submissive to Christ, if you entrust yourself to the will of God and the Holy Spirit and say, Father, use me in any capacity you can, you can be used mightily for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see that the early church was comprised of the poor. Now James gives us this hypothetical example to address the problem, and it's this. Hey, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes. So, so the, the compare and contrast is obvious, right? We're going to take a very rich person, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that, and we're going to contrast that with a very poor person. So James gives us some insight. He's really painting the picture. He says, if a man comes into your assembly, now that word for assembly is the same word for synagogue. All right? But bear in mind one important thing. Most of these Jews had been excommunicated. So we got to get the context. This is a small group of believers that are coming together to meet. Right? And they're comprised, just by history, of mostly the poor, the underclass. So it's a small group. So picture picture our church here. And somebody comes in, let's say it's a government official or somebody famous we see on TV. There's a stir that's created. Who's this man that comes in? Well, first of all, he says he's got a gold ring. Actually, the Greek word actually means that he's adorned in gold. That means he's got a lot of gold. He's flashing his bling all over the place. He comes in, and not only does he have a gold ring, but he's dressed 
in fine clothing. And that means bright, that means colorful, that means expensive clothing. So we get the picture right away. This guy has money. And here he walks into this underclass comprised of slaves, comprised of the poor mostly. And a stir is created. The stir is created. Wow, look at this guy that's come into the church. Look at this person that's come into the church. Oh, how joyful, how this, how that they would be. James says here at the end of verse 2, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Now that word for poor means one who is hunched over a beggar. This is how poor it is. So you see the contrast and the compare is extreme. Wealthy, gold adorned, super beautiful, colorful, bright clothing. And one who comes in who we would call a street person, living on the street, more than likely homeless. And he says, one who is wearing, and you pay special, I'm sorry, verse 2, he says, also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Now, dirty clothes here means that the one who is wearing the clothes are all the clothes that they have. They're destitute. They are not only dirty, they are smelly. This is a person coming in off the street versus a person who is of rather significant means. James says in this conduct, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to poor man, you stand over there or you sit down by my footstool. And you kind of get the picture, don't you? You're so amazed that this special person walked into your assembly. You want to make that person feel welcome. So you go over to that person and say, hey, 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 you know, come right here. Here's a good seat for you. You, know, you sit right over there. Now, these Small assemblies, they didn't have rows of seats. There may have been a few seats. For the most part, right, they were going to sit somewhere on the floor. So who gets the better seat? The one who gets the better seat is the one who comes in with the fine clothing. And what happens to the one who doesn't have the fine clothing? They're disregarded, right? Just find the spot over there. Maybe you sit over there. Go over there. Find the spot. And this is the example that James is showing of this partiality. And James is showing this for a reason. It's wrong. We are not to have that in the church of Jesus Christ. This poor man, this street person, is not to be disregarded based on a superficial judgment. We naturally make an assumption that the one dressed in fine clothing, the one with gold, is worthy. Whereas the person on the street, we may make an assumption that says, well, they're, they're a drug addict, or they're an alcoholic, or they're a crackhead. 
How is the church to show mercy? And James' answer is very simple. We're to show mercy without partiality, without favoritism. All are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All deserve to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see here that James says, this is all wrong. Look at verse 4. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil motives. These are, these are strong words that are being used here. This word distinction means to discern one thing from another. But that discernment is being done based on the exterior. And people have always made the mistake of judging others with an outward appearance. Has not our world been filled with these types of judgment? And many people have suffered due to racism, ethnic cleansing, discrimination of those whom society has deemed less worthy? It wasn't too long ago that a crazy person named Adolf Hitler felt that the problems of the world could all be traced back to the Jewish race and subscribe to the philosophy that says, eliminate the Jews, you eliminate the problems. I mean, it was 1945. I know to some of you younger people that seems like a long time, and I wasn't alive in 1945, but <laughs> just think about it. And we thought at the end of World War II, well, that could never happen again. And then you have a man like Joseph Stalin who's estimated to have killed 40 million or 50 million people just on paranoia alone. And then we said, well, that could never happen again. And then the rise of communism in, in China and you have Mao Zedong who's estimated to have killed 60 million people in his cultural revolution. He said, well, that can't happen in modern times. And then you had Cambodia with Pol Pot and the killing fields of the 1970s and the 1980s where in a small country Pol Pot killed over 3 million people because they wouldn't subscribe or he thought they wouldn't subscribe to communism. It always amazes me, it always amazes me that the world says we could fix things through education, more awareness, all these other different approaches, and yet fails to see the fatal flaw of sin. And so to this day, we still have discrimination. And to this day, we still have sectarianism. And as I started this, the, the sermon, you start to see more and more that this is re-infiltrated. Just recently, the vaccinated against the unvaccinated, this against that, the conservatives against the liberals. It, 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 it's mind-numbing. And can I share something with you guys? I know many of you may watch the political scene. I, I, I am done. I am finished. 
But let me share something with you. There's a lot of frustration out there by many of you and many outside of this church as we watch the political banter go back and forth. And I'm going to tell you where this frustration comes from. This frustration stems from the fact that many people are looking for justice in an unjust world. And I'm going to tell you something. You're never going to find it. America doesn't need a new president. America needs a new soul. And the only thing that is going to bring about justice is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something, we're not going to find that justice here on that earth until the perfect righteous judge in Jesus Christ comes. So don't waste your cycles. Don't hang on every word that this person says or that person. Stay in the word of God. Now let me take it another step further. In the church, in the church... There is no room for partiality and favoritism. There is no room for surface judgment. There is no room looking at a person and saying, I like that person, I don't like that person. Oh, I like the way that person dressed, that person dresses like this. There's no room for that in the church. We are all, if we are in Christ, we are all blood washed, we are all saved, By the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, we become one in Christ. The unity of the body is critical. And when we start resorting to things of favoritism and partiality, that unity gets fractured and it impacts the advancement of the gospel. And we don't want to be people that impact the advancement of the gospel. James' word right here says, you've made distinctions. You have judged on the exterior. You have made distinctions. And consequently, you now have become judges with evil motives. And I'll tell you what. That is always a tragedy of the fallen human heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord says to Samuel these words, and you should always remember these words. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Proverbs, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, talks about the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? But 17, 10, which you don't hear quoted too often, says this, For I, the Lord, know the heart and I render to every man according to his deeds. We do not want to judge in that matter. Judging by outward appearances, looking at wealth and fine clothes, giving preferential treatment to the wealthy over the poor, that constitutes wicked judging. Wicked judging. 
and is a sin. James uses these two words. He says, have you not become a judge with evil motives? And, and, and evil motives is, carries with it the thought that we follow perverse opinions. We follow perverse opinions. And where do those opinions come from? They come from deep inside of us. Listen, I find it hard to believe that there's no one who has any biases or dispositions toward it. I have mine, you have yours. But in the church, as, as, as Jason read during our scripture reading, we are not to judge those that have a, a splinter in the eye and, and meanwhile we're over there trying to judge them and out of our eye is coming this huge telephone pole and we're telling the person with the splinter, here's everything that's wrong with you. Our Lord Jesus Christ forbade that type of thinking. And we are not called to Imagine circumstances. A brother or sister may come to us and say, share something with us that may be confidential or may, may come. A brother may sister say, brother, pray for me. I'm struggling with this. And then when they go out of sight, our minds go wild with, well, you know, the reason that they're thinking like that is they do this and they do that. And, and you know, they created their own problem. We're not to do that. But we're to earnestly bring it before the Lord. And pray for that brother or pray for that sister. Hey, the New Testament itself teaches that believers are to esteem each other. Not equal with them, better than themselves. Listen to the word of God, Romans 12, 16. But be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves. 1 Peter 3.1 To sum it all up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and in a humble spirit. 1 John 4.12 No one has beheld God in any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Church, let us not be those who judge on outward appearances. And disregard the lowly. But that all would be welcomed among us. And that we as believers would esteem each other as better than ourselves. Listen, I told you that this epistle of, of James is about practical faith. Living and abiding faith. Blocking and tackling faith. The execution of faith. This is what this epistle is about. And it's built upon the word of God. And consequently, as believers, we're not called to favoritism. We're not called to partiality. And you know there's something else too. In the spiritual realm, believers in Christ, guess what? 
We were that destitute, that poor, that homeless. We came to the Lord Jesus Christ in filthy, soiled, stained garments of self-righteousness. We came with an arrogance. We came wrong. We came in sin. And Christ did not ignore our cries for mercy. But rather Christ came. Christ saved. Christ transformed us into the image of Christ. And Christ gave, and God gave his only begotten son in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this. The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Hey, we the redeemed have become joint heirs with Christ. Where then would we come off with surface level partiality? We are reminded time and time again that God chose the foolish of this world. 1 Corinthians 1.28 But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he may nullify the things that are. You know what that means? That means if you are in Jesus Christ, you're one of those fools. I'm glad to be a fool for Jesus Christ. Let the world say whatever the world wants to say. James is going to go on later in the epistle to say that isn't it the rich and the, 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 the famous and the ones who have everything? Aren't they the ones who sue you? Aren't they the ones that throw you into jail? Aren't they the ones that cause you trouble? Now listen, this isn't a class type of thing, an indictment. Listen, God has wealthy people. As a matter of fact, if God didn't have wealthy people, the advancement of the gospel would be limited. And God has raised up and blessed many people of many means to be able to help the advancement of the gospel. And for that we say, praise God. So no one should ever interpret this that poor is righteous and rich is unrighteous. That's nonsense. But what God is saying is whether you're one of those people of means Maybe you're one of those people in the middle. Maybe you're one of those people who have nothing. All of us were fools. And God has chosen the believer to confound the wise. You notice that the world does not get Christianity. And because it does not get Christianity, what does it seek to do? It seeks to persecute Christianity and wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. By the way, you talk about futility, that will never be done. God will always have his people. Up until the end. So do what they want. 
They may be able to kill Christians by the bushelful. God will always have his people. But what did God choose? He chose weak things, weak vessels. God chose the foolish to confound the wise. Usually to confound the wise, you want to confound them with someone wiser. But God has chosen the foolish, the ordinary, the average, the despised of the world. By the way, with the advancement of the gospel, would you choose that lot? Seriously, you want to advance the gospel? Would you say, give me all the weak, give me all the ones that don't know it. Give me the fools, and I'm going to take this thing, and I'm going to spread it across the world. But God does that for a reason. What's the reason? That all the glory may be his. All the glory may be his. Let me share something. With this, I'll close. There's no merit in any of us. God didn't choose any of us because he said, boy, if I can only get that person, man, would the kingdom go wild. He chose us because of his great love and his affection. We were predetermined in eternity past that we would be his for his name and for his glory. That was it. There's no merit in any of us. But consequently, we were chosen not merely so that we wouldn't go to hell. We were chosen. If you're in Christ, every single Christian has been chosen that we may show forth the glory of God in our salvation. See, it's the glory of God that's paramount. You hear a lot about Jesus loved me, Jesus loved me. Yes, Jesus loved you, but it's the glory of God. You were chosen for the glory of God that you would bear forth the glory of God in your life and through your life. That people would look at you and say, I don't know what it is about that person, but that person walks with God. They would be confounded. And that God would give you the opportunity to share the gospel and you would see someone else come to Christ and the same thing would be carried on through them. Now, because of that, isn't it incumbent upon us that every facet of our life should declare the glory of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that we should live our life in obedience to the Lord and with joy, with joy, lay aside everything that's not Christ so that Christ would be preeminent in us. And if Christ is preeminent in us, then God is glorified. And consequently, for Christ to be preeminent in us, there is no partiality. There is no favoritism. We love one another in the body of Christ 
We love Christ and we love the church universal. And as a people of God, our greatest joy, our greatest affection is indeed Christ. That's the people that God will work through. And I pray that that is the people that we will continue to strive to become so that Christ would be glorified in us. Let's bow in a word of prayer.